Hey, Nate. Yeah, Sam. Do you have dry earwax or wet earwax? I don't know. I never really thought about it. Well, apparently, there's a genetic test that you can get that will tell you. Really? What else can these things tell you? I think they can tell you a lot, but are they even reliable? I don't know. Hey, I got got a question question about that. Welcome to another episode of Hey, I Got a Question About That. I'm Sam. I'm Nate, and this is a podcast and video series where we talk about all the fascinating research going on here at the Penn State Everly College of Science. And today on the pod, we're joined by Cheryl Keller. She's an associate research professor of biochemistry and molecular biology, and Cheryl studies gene regulation during blood cell development. Yeah, and we talked to Cheryl about direct-to-consumer genetic testing, so let's check it out. So today we are joined by Cheryl Keller. She's an associate research professor of biochemistry and molecular biology here in the college. Welcome to the podcast, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your research? Sure. Yeah, we study blood cell development in mice, and we use that as a a model system to learn more about uh, blood development in humans. And blood is critically important for human health. It carries oxygen and carbon dioxide back and forth uh, to various tissues in your body, all your tissues in your body. And so it plays a major role. And if you interfere with the normal process uh, of, you know, blood cell development and the way blood functions, it can lead to various diseases. And some of the diseases that you may be familiar with might be sickle cell disease, in which the blood cells don't normally, don't form properly because of a mutation in a protein called hemoglobin, which binds the oxygen. Uh, And those people who have sickle cell disease uh, have trouble getting enough oxygen to their tissues, and they're very can be very sick and have lower quality of life. And so, by learning about how uh, blood is normally made and those processes, then we can learn more about disease processes and how to uh, improve human health and how to treat those diseases. Cool. And there's testing for things like sickle cell disease, right? Like genetic testing. Yes. Yeah, so there's. Of course, many different kinds of diseases, but one thing about sickle cell disease is that it's due to a very specific mutation in one gene. So it's a very easy uh, easy disease to test for because it's really only uh, one gene that's affected. And so, yeah, that can be done uh, in uh, very early, any time in life. Um, it, it disproportionately affects uh, individuals of uh, African descent. So they are uh, at greater risk, and but it, it is uh, certainly a um, yeah testable disease. So Nate and I were discussing this kind of concept of genetic testing and how it's something that's in the news a lot, especially with direct-to-consumer test uh, genetics and genomics. Um, how reliable are these kind of genetic tests? Now, that's a good question, and and you know. There are certainly a lot of medical tests that you would, if you're testing for disease, there's a lot of, um, you can test chromosomes and you can test, uh, so it's different, so for example, Down syndrome, um, those individuals usually have an extra chromosome 21 or a piece of chromosome 21, which leads to Down syndrome, and that's, there's a very reliable genetic test. You can also test for, um, again, specific gene mutations like sickle cell or Tay-Sachs or uh, hemochromatosis, which is a disease in which you uh, have iron overload, too much iron in the blood. And so those sorts of diseases, the tests are very reliable. You know, as long as the the actual lab, which is do, performing the test, 
uh, you know, is, is a certified laboratory, and those results are, are very trustworthy and reliable. Um, you can also actually test for, um, instead of actually testing DNA or chromosomes, you can test for different uh, enzymes or level of proteins in the blood, which may reflect a genetic disease that you have. So, you know, in that case, people will use genetic testing. For example, they test newborns for a variety of diseases when they're born, which especially ones where you need critical care early on to treat a disease in order to, you know, save that newborn's life. So there are diseases that get tested for very early. Again, these are all very reliable and established tests. Uh, you can also do diagnostic tests if uh, an individual and some diseases, you know, may occur later on in life. And those, uh, if you want to like rule out or confirm a specific disease, again, when you're talking about medical testing, very reliable, established um, tests are available. And that there's a few other uh, types of uh, situations where you may want to genetic do genetic testing. Um, Nowadays, it'd be more getting to the point where we're doing some pre-implantation genetic testing where people are doing in vitro fertilization and they may test, you know, let's say the parents have, um, are carriers for, uh, you know, so, some genetic diseases and they really want to have a healthy child and avoid that genetic disease. And you can, if you're doing in vitro fertilization, you know, at the um, very early on in, in development, um, you can take out a cell and, and you know, test that, those embryos to see uh, you know, whether or not that that um, embryo is carrying the genetic disease. So again, there, there's certainly medical testing, which is very validated and you know, plays an important role in human health. Today, we're seeing uh, with the advent of a lot of direct consumer testing. And those tests, unlike medical tests, where you need usually a prescription you know, from your doctor and your doctor orders it, direct-to-consumer tests are tests available from companies that you may see advertised uh, online, uh, in print, or, you know, and those, there's, there's pros and cons, benefit and risks, really. Before we get too deep into that, um, maybe, so some of the examples you gave, like uh, Tay-Sachs and sickle cell disease, I think, so the relationship between the genetic mutation and the disease is very straightforward, right? There, it's it's very predictive. Yes. Um, even things like uh, a lot of people, there's a lot of testing for things like the breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which can be very predictive, but they're they're sort of not. There's not that straightforward one-to-one -one relationship because a lot of breast cancer is caused by something other than those genes. Correct. Right? Correct. So, <clears throat> is um, how, do, how do those type of tests differ as far as how people should be in, interpreting them, maybe? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good question. Well, uh, so, again, tests that might look for uh, diseases that due to, let's say, Tay-Sachs or, or that we talked about, and the reliability of those, like I said, are very accurate because the disease is due to a mutation in one single gene. Okay, so... That makes it either a yes or no. You either have the disease or you're not, you know, or you're not for, for the most part. Whereas in uh, mutations that put you at risk for other diseases, like breast cancer with the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, that may increase your risk, but it does not mean you're going to get the disease. And that's important. And I think that that's where some of the confusion and over interpretation, you know, in, in chest results. And 
you know, because your lifestyle, there's, it's known that lifestyles play a factor, diet and exercise, uh, sleep, those, those um, can, stress can all play a role in whether or not, you know, you may actually go forward and, and develop cancer. And so by testing some of these, the presence for some of these mutations can, the benefits really is you could make uh, some decisions that can affect your health and maybe better, uh, try to make better lifestyle choices, which is very hard for people to make lifestyle changes. Um, but it can also put people uh, at your stress and perhaps very unnecessary stress because you may then be worried about a disease that you may never get. Why would people want to do these direct-to-consumer tests and what kind of information are they getting from them? That's a good question. So I actually have done my own um, from 23andMe. This was years ago. And I'll, so I'll talk a little bit about my experience to then answer your question about the kinds of things you can learn and why people might do that. And back when I did it, it was before the FDA kind of started cracking down on the kind of information that these companies uh, could give you. And, and by information, I mean how they are interpreting the results and what kind of conclusions they're making based on your um, results. And so there are several sections. So first, one thing that people use for both 23andMe and, and Ancestry.com is to learn about their ancestry. And I'm, I'm not a... I'm not going to, I'm not an expert in ancestry, um, but that's a really interesting, uh, one interesting way of, of kind of learning more about your family tree and your family origins. So I think a lot of people are interested in that. And, and certainly it's a good tool to uh, try and search out your family history. And so that uh, it actually, and it, my results made sense. I have uh, my maternal grandparents uh, were from Poland a couple generations back, and I had a very strong Eastern European presence in my uh, my genome, my ancestry results. So that that made sense to me. Uh, so that's one reason people do it. Um, then you can otherwise they will now like I said they've cracked down a little bit, but they will still provide you with certain. Um, your, your carrier status, in other words. So are you carrying different uh, variants or, or mutations that would mean you're going, you know, you're at risk for developing a specific disease? Again, they do test for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. They will also look at different variants that are implicated in Alzheimer's disease. Um, but again, that is also not a one-to-one -one correlation. It, it's you, you can be at increased risk depending on what um, APOE, APOE allele you have, or uh, but there's actually one of them is even a little protective. Hmm. So here's an interesting, interesting uh, thing to think about with a lot of these tests is, let's say you have one variant that is causing a, uh, let's say is associated with a 5% increase in risk of disease. And then you have a variant that's associated with a 5% decrease <laughs> risk of that disease. What, what does that mean? You know, You're know, you safe, right? Yeah, yeah, out. sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that, it's not really that simple. And I think you know, a lot of these tests are really only, or these companies, you know, they're looking at essentially a handful of spots in your genome and, and trying to make predictions based on that. But they, they're really not looking at complete information. Uh, also, the lot of other information that you can get from these tests would be different traits, like do you, how well do you process caffeine? Um, are you a likely sprinter? And this is interesting. We can talk a little bit more about 
uh, some of these more lifestyle-based interpretations, but there is uh, one actin gene that if you don't have any working copies of this actin, so this actin gene is associated with, uh, they call it the gene for speed. And most- That's, Those are the proteins that like make up your muscle fibers. Yes, right? yes, sorry, yeah. yeah. And most elite power athletes and sprinters have two working copies of the actin gene, whereas in, if you look at uh, more elite distance runners, they do not. Hmm. I myself am a distance runner, and I found out that I do not have wor working copies of that <laughs> gene. So, but that's, there's really no disease affected, you know, right. by that, by the lack of that copy of the gene. Um, but you can also learn a little bit more about yourself of whether or not you uh, may be lactose intolerant or your likelihood of being lactose intolerant. And there's some kind of silly ones uh, as far as whether you might have a widow's peak. And this is interesting because I actually do have a widow's peak. <laughs> and my 23andMe results suggest that I am very unlikely to have a widow's peak. So I think that that's really something just right there. And then you need to take it with a grain of salt. And I've looked through my results. And I think you need to, some of them I feel like are spot on. Yeah. And other ones I feel I'm looking at like, what? You know, so I think that that that's should, is a clue right there. You know right. that that again, the information is not complete. One of my favorite ones that I've heard people talk about is earwax. The, there's some apparently mm -hmm. genetic component of whether you have what wax wet earwax or, or, or yeah, yeah yeah yeah. I I, I forget. I think I well, unlikely, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I wonder if they found the gene for our baldness yet. Oh, there probably are. I'm sure there are alleles that are are lead to the increased um, likelihood of baldness. Or... Right. There's a red hair gene, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nowadays, they're actually coming out. There's a lot more companies. Um, again, so 23andMe was one of the early ones that had this direct-to-consumer testing. Now there's some additional ones that are stepping a little bit further outside um, more medical-associated types of risks and traits. So, for example, and, um, uh, ones that may offer or predict to offer you uh, personalized nutritional advice. Mm. And again, they're only really looking at, if you want to think about a handful, it's like sampling, not quite grains of sand on the beach, but, you know, kind of close, right. uh, where they're just looking at a handful of different genes and variants and saying, oh, well, you don't process fats well, or, oh, you don't process carbohydrates well. And they're making predictions on basi basically what, you know, types of foods you can eat. And let me be clear that there's no evidence for that, that those predictions uh, uh, have any you know, evidence, right. really. Uh, and I think that in that case, it's a lot of that, those kinds of tests are a little more than guesswork. And then do the do people who get these test results also get, you know, sort of nutrition, uh, nutritionist designed diets or, or anything? Yeah. Like oh, and of course they are willing to sell you uh. diet plans based on your genetic tests. And, and uh, you know, the, the, I think the problem is, is the public is misled into thinking that these results or these predictions have a lot of value where they really have, uh, you know, these companies are offering this information and making these predictions, but sci the science is not there to back it up. So I'm curious, since you said you did 23andMe a, a little while ago, do they continue to update um, when new science is um, available to, so that you have access to all the latest and greatest uh, sort of predictions that they're making? I do. I, I actually have access to all my old reports, which are, again, a little more extensive and a little more, I don't want to say, well, I guess speculative is the right word, uh, before the FDA made them go through and, and rigorously, more rigorously validate, you mm -hmm. know, their, their tests. Um, but they do go ahead. They will update that. 
And if they find information, I mean, they will update your risk. Uh, again, though, sometimes you can see your risk go up or go down. You know, oh, I before I had a, oh, what, what's this? Before I had a 5% decrease in risk, and now I have a 10% increase in risk. I mean, obviously, your risk hasn't really changed. It's just the report right. of risk has changed. So that's why it's really kind of important to take a step back and, and understand that, that um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty yeah. out there. So if I get one of these tests done and it says I'm at an increased risk for Alzheimer's, should I take these results to my doctor? So I, talking to your doctor would be a great first step. And I, I think, again, that uh, diseases which have a strong lifestyle component, um, you, there's really no need to panic. You know, and I think that really, regardless of your genetic background, everyone could benefit from making solid, you know, lifestyle changes for the better. You know, so I think that that but talking to your doctor about what they feel is, is um, you know, your your actual risk based on your personal medical history and, uh, and family history, whether or not how much that might impact you. Do you think that um Having this kind of information available, though, is going to cause a a change in how doctors have to do their business. Like, I imagine most doctors aren't necessarily trained as genetic counselors to, so that they might not have the background to interpret this stuff any better than your average consumer. Sure, that's that's uh, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, and I don't want to give the impression that I disagree with these the availability of these tests personally i think it's fantastic and i love having access and i've actually combed through my own raw data not uninterpreted data mm -hmm. to look for specific variants uh, or evidence of disease for you know <laughs> variants associated with disease and i have actually educated my own doctor about one or two things that i i wanted to bring up and discuss about whether uh, he felt that we should keep an eye on, mm -hmm. yeah. So that that's uh, so. I think that it's. I think that we are moving further and further toward personalized medicine, you know, with having these tests available. But I just feel that right now there's a big gap in what's being offered to the consumer and the science to back up changes that you might make. Right. You know, well, if you have that information, you know, is that really going to affect your care? You know, down the road, and and we just we don't really know with having some of this information of whether or not um, it's really going to make a difference. So, if you find out you have a serious mutation, um, is there any anything that can be done about that? I've heard a lot about gene editing. Is that something that can be done now? Yeah, gene editing is a really exciting uh, tool that it has come more into um, public. Um, and through a technique called CRISPR, again, which is a gene editing tool that's from bacteria. And uh, so there are certain cases, again, that, that uh, gene editing could be useful in order to treat you know, or cure disease. And uh, going back to blood, which is you know, being why I work on blood, is uh, sickle cell disease. And to tell you a little bit more about sickle cell disease uh, is that it results from a mutation in a protein called um, a, a part of a protein you know, called hemoglobin, which carries oxygen. So hemoglobin is made up of four different protein subunits. So p four different little proteins that come together and then they carry oxygen. And there's two alpha and two beta. And so sickle cell results from a mutation in the beta subunit of, of hemoglobin. And so that causes the sickling effect in the red blood cell, which makes it difficult to carry oxygen. So 
when you're an adult, you know, you're making the two beta and your two alpha, but when you're a when you're developing as a fetus, you actually produce two alpha and two uh, hemoglobin is made of two alpha and two gamma. So that's a different gene, and that's called fetal hemoglobin. So that's that's what's expressed before before you're born, and then very soon after you're born, you kind of turn on adult expression. And what's what's interesting, uh, one thing that uh, researchers are trying to do, I have been working on, and are close, and some human trials have begun where they can edit uh, the DNA in some um, cells, which will give rise to red blood cells, because red blood cells themselves don't actually have a nucleus. So you can't actually directly edit red blood cells, but what you can do is edit cells that will develop into blood cells. So um, stem cells, so if you've heard of stem cells, and there be stem cells in the bone marrow. And what, you, what they've been trying to do is find ways to increase uh, production or expression of this gamma globin. So in other words, can you take some bone marrow stem cells from an adult who has sickle cell and take them out and do some gene editing to make those cells now express or produce higher levels of hemoglobin, which it doesn't normally do, right? And so there's been a lot of in, uh, studies in cell culture and in the lab, as well as working with some, like I said, some early, very early clinical trials where then you can um, again use this CRISPR, this gene editing tool, and it, it there is does make you can make enough of that fetal hemoglobin expression in order to kind of overcome that level of sickling. And it, you can't so far they haven't been able to make it the same so to the same level as the adult, but you can kind of overcome that that threshold, which would then allow those patients to have a much greater quality of life. So they're really expressing than hemoglobin. So that's like a real world example of what's happening now with, with gene editing and by, uh, you know, genetic testing can allow, identify, you know, potential genes to, to do that in the future. But again, I think it's important to realize that right now, gene editing is only going to be useful for those genes which are due to a mutation in one gene, those diseases, right? right. So if you have lifestyle diseases like diabetes and obesity and, and so forth, you know, we're not there. We, there's no real obvious way to do gene editing. But for very specific, you know, serious genetic diseases, you know, that's a, that's a real possibility that we should be seeing in our lifetime, I think. You say they took bone marrow cells out and did the gene editing on them. Do they go back into the body then, or how does that work? So, yeah, then you would do a, a bone marrow transplant. And, and I'm not an expert in transplant biology, but in um, certain cases, you could hopefully then repopulate the bone marrow with these modified gene-edited cells so that hopefully that they would establish themselves enough. Um, and stem cells, by definition, are cells that can both renew and, and remake another version of themselves, as well as divide and give rise to other cell types, differentiate to other cells, like blood cells. So the idea would be to at least replace a, a proportion of the, the patient's um, affected cells with edited cells. And you would, you would ha you know, try to find ways to get that to be established in a certain percentage of their bone marrow with the, with the edited cells. You know, there's sort of a, a chain of custody mm -hmm. of this DNA that's, you know, outside of the lab. So do you think that there's increased risk of, of contamination or things like that that could lead to errors? So uh, medical 
medical testing done through your doctor would be always done by a uh, CLIA certified laboratory. And what that essentially means is, you know, they've gone through vigorous um, evaluations and, and follow rigorous, vigorous standards to ensure the accuracy of the results. With some of these direct consumer testing, that may not be the case. And I think that that's important to know. And, and I can't recall the specific instance, but I do have a recollection of a hearing a couple stories where someone had heard or gotten their results from a direct consumer company about a particular um, result for one of the BRCA genes and actually went forward with uh, a mastectomy mm. and then found out, in fact, that, that it was an incorrect test. And so that would be, you know, a huge life-changing decision that you've that you know one has made that would uh you know cause certainly a lot of unnecessary stress and um, medical procedures and as well as other things so i think that there is a risk that some of these direct-to-consumer tests may be inaccurate but i think that the the bigger risk is not so much what the actual result is in terms of the dna um, mutation being you know a or b versus you know a b or c or whatever kind of mutation it is but the interpretation of yeah. that and how um that result is going to affect your risk and is, is it an option if i just wanted to know about my ancestry um but can i just get that information or do i just have to like kind of close one eye when i look at the results <laughs> Yeah, so there are. I think Ancestry.com only only offers uh, Ancestry information. Twenty Three and Me will offer Ancestry information as well as, um, you know, some medical type tests. And it, they do actually. So Twenty Three and Me will actually block off um, like a, a some of the genes where people might cause excess worry. You know, Parkinson risk, um, breast cancer risk, Alzheimer risk, where you can pull up the results of your uh, profile testing, but you actually have to go through, you have to like drill down several windows and uh, go through a tutorial and um, before you, they'd actually give you the results. So that basically you don't have to look if you right. don't want to. Some people don't want to know. And, right. and you know, I, I know several people who really don't want to know and they would rather just go through life and, and, you know, less you know than the better. <laughs> but uh, as a scientist, I, of course, I like more information. And it, 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 certain things have caused me probably unnecessary worry from time to time. I, so 23andMe and Ancestry.com are sort of doing your entire genome. But I've been seeing uh, commercials for things that are sort of specific tests, one for colon cancer, I think. Sure. So that would be Cologuard. And uh, that is not actually, that's that actually is measuring is, they call cell-free DNA, okay, in your uh, in your feces in your stool, mm -hmm. and the what that's actually testing for. So when is piece perhaps pieces of DNA that might have been shed off of a growing cancer in your colon, and you can actually um, test using DNA testing to look for pieces of DNA that would be associated with colon cancer, and so the. Advantage, of course, is you do not have to go through a colonoscopy, which many people have anxiety about. I'm not yet 50, so I haven't had to face that yet. But, uh, you know, so a lot of people are not keen on that. And for low-risk patients, that might be a way to, that is, you know, a way to, to go and, and test yourself. However, it's important to know that it does not, it's not going to pick up precancerous 
polyps or precancerous changes or other problems uh, that might be occurring in your colon. And so in that respect, the, the colonoscopy really is the gold standard. So could you maybe just summarize the direct-to-consumer kind of genetic testing and what people need to keep in mind if, the, if they're interested in doing it? Okay, so for benefits, uh, so you are going to get some very personalized information about your own risks, and I think that that can help you make some informed decisions about your uh, care, your, your personal care, your um, maybe some medical decisions, and whether or not you should be more motivated to make some important lifestyle changes. And also you can then potentially identify whether you're a, a carrier, which may affect uh, whether your decision to have children or either your children's risk if you know that you're a carrier for a, a disease. So I think that um, you know there, there's some benefits. It's very, it's simple, it's quick. You don't have to go through uh, a doctor. It's really non-invasive because most of them just use a, a swab and take some uh, samples inside your cheeks. So it's pretty easy and straightforward. It's usually not very expensive. Um, the downside is that the direct consumer testing are, many of them are unregulated. And you may learn uh, information about yourself that you're not prepared for uh, that, that may increase your stress. Um, perhaps unnecessarily, so that's concerning. There may also be uh, errors, both in, in the data and in the interpretation. Again, we do not know everything there is to know, and, and much of what's being offered and interpreted out there is little more than guesswork at this time. And uh, so I think that you know you kind of need to go in with it with open eyes and um, you know view it a little bit with a grain of salt, depending on what exactly you're you're trying to find out. So that was cool. Yeah, it really seems like these services can tell you a lot about yourself, but you should probably do your own research too. Right. It was interesting too to hear the difference between genetic testing for things like Tay-Sachs or sickle cell disease right. versus you know these direct-to-consumer things that tell you about your nutrition and your earwax. So if you want to learn more about Cheryl's research or any of the research going on here at the Penn State Everly College of Science, we will have links in the show notes below. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Hey, I Got a Question About That. Uh, if you haven't already, check out our previous episodes. You can find us wherever you get podcasts or on YouTube. And give us a like, subscribe, and leave us a comment. I have a more thunderous voice. Welcome to another episode <laughs> about these direct-to-consumer... Why can... That. Why do I throw the that in there? About these direct-to-consumer... Um... Son of a... We talked to Cheryl about direct-to-consumer genetic tests. That's it, Nate. That's all you gotta say. Ready? I guess. So that was cool. Make sure you check yourself before you wreck yourself. Ugh. That's not that bad. I almost caught the house on fire, though. But <laughs> other than that, it wasn't that bad. Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. More pep. I seriously want to create like a dubstep remix of just you going, uh. <laughs> Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. Do you have... Dry or wet earwax? Wet. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that answer. How would I even find out? Nope, that doesn't make any sense. Just stick your finger in your ear. Are you even listening to us? <laughs>